Today on My Climate Journey's startup series, our guest is Julie Willoughby, Chief Commercialization Officer at Cirque. And we are talking about fast fashion, the clothing industry, and how Cirque's process is bringing circularity to the world of polyester and cotton. The Ellen MacArthur Foundation has a deep dive on their website on fashion and the circular economy. It includes stats like every second, the equivalent of a garbage truckload of clothes is burned or buried in a landfill. And clothing production in the world has doubled in the last 15 years, while each piece of clothing is only used about half as many times as in the past. So basically, we're making and buying and throwing away a lot more stuff than we used to. It's not really a surprise if you think about it, but it's certainly not something that's on the right trajectory. Meanwhile, the laundering of polyester clothes creates around a third of all microplastics in the ocean. Cotton is one of the world's thirstiest crops. Producing a simple cotton t-shirt takes hundreds of gallons of water. And textile dyeing is one of the greatest sources of water pollution. Finally, if the fashion industry continues on its current path, by 2050, it could use more than 25% of the carbon budget associated with a 2 degrees Celsius global warming limit. Cirque is seeking to change all of this. Julie is joining me to walk through her background as a chemical engineer and the path she took through academia and Nike to join Cirque. She breaks down some of the challenges with the fashion industry and why it's grown as it has over the last couple of decades. And then she talks about how Cirque's technology works to transform textile scrap and used material into recycled thread. Cirque is post-Series B, and its investors include Breakthrough Energy Ventures, Patagonia's Ten Shed Ventures, Inditex, which is the parent company of Zara, and a host of other notable venture capital funds and fashion brands. We conclude our chat with a conversation about where fashion is on the tipping point scale of adopting sustainability. Is the industry actively funding the transition of its mainstream business practices? Or is circularity and sustainability more of an R&D project? And if so, when will this tipping point occur? But before we start... I'm Cody Sims. I'm Yin Lu. And I'm Jason Jacobs. And welcome to My Climate Journey. This show is a growing body of knowledge focused on climate change and potential solutions. In this podcast, we traverse disciplines, industries, and opinions to better understand and make sense of the formidable problem of climate change and all the ways people like you and I can help. Julie, welcome to the show. Well, thanks, Cody. It's great to be here. Julie, I am excited for this conversation because we haven't done a whole lot on the show about fashion. And as I've come to learn, the fashion industry is a really growing contributor to a lot of factors that relate to climate change or just environmental impact in general. And at Cirque, you all are doing your best to try to slow that down, <laughs> is my understanding. That's right. We're on a mission to protect the planet from the cost of clothing. 
Well, let's start first, before we get into Cirque and what you all do, let's start with your background because you have a fascinating background, really, really deep in material science and chemistry. And so maybe explain to us how you got started in this whole space in the first place. I've been a chemical engineer for over 30 years, but I've had a fascinating journey. I think it's brought me so exposure to so many opportunities and challenges that were really warranted needing analysis and solving. And where I like to say is that all the roads prior to CERC led me here because I was in the chemical industry as a traditional chemical engineering at Dow Silicones. And then I decided after 11 and a half years there that I should go get my PhD in chemical engineering. So that's what I did and studied things like polymer physics and surface chemistry, which ended up bringing me into packaging. And so that was in 2007 when I went to work for Midwest Vaco. And the five-year hiatus I had in academia, it's like everything had shifted from development to innovation. And then the other thing that happened while I was deep in my graduate work was the Walmart sustainability scorecard. And so as packaging came and barrier coatings were really taking off as how do you eliminate plastic? How do you eliminate that plastic that's extruded onto a plastic cup? And then goes into the landfill and it's not fully degrading because of the... What was the Walmart sustainability scorecard? So they gave it to every supplier of theirs and you had to meet certain criteria or they wouldn't buy your goods. So Walmart has a really clever marketing and savvy marketing platform. And that was their way to really drive suppliers to change to be like, we're going to pick this product if you don't meet our score. And I can't remember everything that was on it. It wasn't my job to measure it. It was my job to invent the science to create coatings that could replace plastic. So this was at Midwest Vaco. You were basically responsible for plastic alternative packaging. That's correct. The next question I have is you started out with this career in chemical engineering and you it sounds like you identify as a chemical engineer. My perception is that the bulk of chemical engineering as a practice really emerged with the rise of how do we take fossil fuels and turn them into usable chemical? Is that a it's very heavily petrochemically based at least as an initial growth engine of the industry. Is that a correct perception? That's interesting. I don't have that perception, but I'm wondering okay. if others do. So now I want to like go like investigate that. And so many of the chemical engineering departments do so much more. And even all these bioplastics that are out there, biopolymers, you have to use the same unit operations that you do for making products from fossil fuels. And if you look at the pulp and paper industry, that's a chemistry-rich industry. And that is also chemical engineers are predominantly in that field. You have pulp and paper science engineers too. But I would say it certainly takes off and any graduate graduating chemical engineer will tell you that the oil, the fossil fuel companies will pay the highest. So it is very lucrative for graduates to get work in that field. Got it. I guess my sort of perception of that comes with the fact that so much of our built environment is using materials that are ultimately somehow hydrocarbon derived at its base level. I don't know if that's true. Like, that's just the kind of 10,000 foot view I have when I think of that whole space of expertise. 
I think commodity products and wear plastics. And there was that famous phrase in the graduate where, and that was in the sixties you know, and chemical engineering existed before the sixties. And it's like, the future you know, is plastics, right? Is that the phrase? Yeah. Yes. Yes. That is the phrase. And I think that the challenge for chemical engineers today, all engineers is to make energy efficient processes that use less utilities that, look at ways to create. I mean, the reason I do chemical engineering and why I still use the principles I've learned and solidified is because you really can take the chemistry, which is everyone, chemistry are molecules. And how do you arrange those molecules into products that people want or actually serve an impact for people like into the medical field? So I think it's hard to just blanket it all as, okay, this is hydrocarbons are bad. It's more of how we're treating the products that we're making and also how are we making the products? Oh, yeah. And by the way, I wasn't meaning to put chemical engineers <laughs> in some bad box at all. I was basically saying for 100 years, we had this incredible amount of byproducts from creating oil and a lot of it is chemistry. And so that byproduct was thus turned into plastics to a large degree. Yeah, I don't have the percentages, but I think it's probably only when I look at the distribution of students going in to their profession coming out of school, I don't think it's a 50-50 split. I think it's probably only 25% go into that oil-rich field. Okay, got it. It might be a little higher. Super helpful. Thank you. Thank you. That's super clarifying. So what prompted you to say, I'm in industry now, now I'm going to go teach? This is a fun story because the chemical engineering building, if you go to NC State's campus, anyone's been there, like just even over the last 10 years, it's exploded their new campus. And we were one of the first departments to move over to the new campus, the name of that building was EB1, Engineering Building 1. It was really unique the way they named that. And then during the course of my grad school, I met my wonderful husband. And right at the end, we didn't want to leave Raleigh, North Carolina. It's a great place to live. And so I went back to school to run my own research group to be a faculty member. And one thing about chemical engineering is that a lot of jobs are in a remote area because the factories are in a remote area. So I was like, I want to live more in a college town. And I've always wanted to really dive in deep into the science and have a group of students doing research. And so I took that brief time at Mead Waseco and it was a fascinating experience, great friendships there. And they're now called West Rock. I took that time really because of life choices. And then when the company was regrouping, that was right around 2008, 2009, when everything, when the housing market crashed and everyone was resetting their business strategies and visions, I had the opportunity to go with them to Richmond, Virginia, but I opted not to because we weren't ready to leave Raleigh. My husband's a native. And literally, the Center for Packaging Innovation, which is where I went after being a grad student, I just walked down the hill because it was on NC State's campus. And then I walked across the street to the College of Textiles to start my faculty position. And I literally, because Midwest Echo was moving, I was even taking, they were loading me up with like push carts of lab supplies to take with me. That was my duration. I guess I spent almost 11 years. Yeah, I did. 11 years on NC State's Centennial campus in three different capacities. All right. So from there, then you were in this position of assistant professor at NC State working on textile engineering. And then you got the call for a little shoe company in Oregon. That's right. Explain how that happened. 
Actually, I mean, my three years, I was on the tenure track and I had just been reappointed. But what I was doing during my three years as a faculty member is I was running a research group, but I was also teaching. I think I was like a little bit on the fence. Am I really ready to give up industry? So when the department head, I was exploring the opportunity and the department head said, you'd be really good at teaching our capstone senior design course because you can help relate the students to industry. And I'm like, yeah, I would be. And the little alarm bells were going off because that's not the traditional course that a tenure track faculty would take because it's not really related to your research. And But I did it and I had so much fun. By the way, I had a great research portfolio too. I was awarded a Bill and Melinda Gates Grand Challenge Exploration for wow. protecting crops. And I won the phase one award, which is like, I don't know, 1% chance of that. And then went on, my student... Jing Chow, she's no longer a student. She's amazing. And she works at Meta right now. But she was the one responsible to the two we got with the team. We got the data that allowed us to get a phase two grant, which is even more rare. I think that goes down to like 0.1%. And then when I left NC State, I transferred it to my fantastic colleagues there, Charlie Operman in the plant biology group, and they took it to commercialization. And this was all in Africa and it was all stimuli responsive. I started working with pH stimuli responsive plant virus nanoparticles. So that was one side. The other side, I was recruiting companies like Hanes, like Nike, Dow Corning came. I had startups. Windlift was one. There were all kinds of different initiatives. And I redesigned. We had a great, strong program before I came. But when I came to the department I was in was textile engineering, chemistry and science. And what they had there and what they still do is like, you almost have your own mini corporation because you have the polymer chemist, the polymer and color chemistry. Then you have the engineers, the textile engineering, and then you have the textile technologies that put all the fibers together. So with that, I combined two groups. I combined textile engineering, textile technology, and I recruited, I probably recruited like over 15 companies raised, you know, for using raised like $50,000 that would all go to the students for either improvements in the lab or their lab use fees, and then got to be with them for the whole year to teach them how to run an innovation product. And one of those companies was Nike. So Nike came and I met these amazing individuals, all very focused around sustainability, John Frazier and Scott Eccles. And they were intrigued in my research because it was that hydrophilic, hydrophobic thing that I talked about in my grad school is very applicable to apparel, as you can imagine. Like, how do you get rid of a Teflon fluorinated membrane in order to stay dry and still have it breathe? And so as we talked about creating a research portfolio together, I also recruited them into the senior design course. So I had a group of students who worked on the Nike project for a couple of years. They sponsored two projects. And during the course of all that and talking about a research portfolio, they had a position open that they started talking to me about. And I was just like, I mean, this is the hardest. I've made a lot of hard decisions in my life, but that one was a really hard one because I mean, students are like, they're like your children. You don't want to, you see, you grow them up and you teach them how. And fortunately, when I told my department head, who was John Rust, who was a great friend as well, he said, oh, that's not a problem. You just stay on as a no-pay faculty and then you can finish getting your students through. So that's what I did. So that I've remained an adjunct faculty and was able to graduate students after I moved to Oregon. 
Oh, that's awesome. You had two roles at Nike over the course of, what, six or seven years. Maybe explain a little bit about the work you did there. So as I was saying, the material science innovation, it was really like understanding and trying to see the new technology. So it's not different from a VC world where you're looking at these new early technologies. Now, I do think, you know, there's these different stages, like how upstream do you want to be? So I think we were too upstream for real innovation. I mean, you want innovation, you're still in a product company, you need to move it fast. And much of this, like, really the sexy stuff that comes out, like structural color, and how are you going to do that? It takes years to develop and scale that. And so when we started moving it into more applied, I looked at where my background had been and the other initiatives at Nike and I jumped over, we had another initiative called Manufacturing Revolution. And that was affectionately called ManRev. And it was all about new methods to make for footwear because making footwear hasn't changed. And really each shoe you're wearing is almost like it's handmade because it touches 200 hands between wow. the start and the finish because it is such an intricate process. So what I did is when I moved into the next role, that was one where in the first organization, the platform was already developed and what we were going to do. In the second role, I developed the platform. So I saw a need for coatings, which had been a theme in my prior work. And I saw a real big need to develop a platform that would enable us to put chemistries only where they need it to be. So instead of like, if you look at a roll of goods, so a roll of fabric, you'll put coatings on those. So a synthetic leather, or sometimes you call those vegan leathers, is one such example. But you're putting it on a full 60 inch wide roll and it's hundreds of meters long. And all that is, is chemistry. That's all chemistry, all coming from fossil fuels for the most part. And if you don't need to put it on that whole entire roll, because when you cut out a pattern, there's about 30% waste. Now you can do a lot with pattern efficiencies to minimize that waste, but you're still going to have waste. And then if it has a coating on it, that can't be recycled very easily because you put it on this, say, polyester support frame, which could have been recycled, but once you stick the coating on top of it, it's not as easy to recycle it. And so we were working on both the chemistry formulations and how to digitally apply those. By the way, I think Vegan Leather is such a creative brand name for a way to refer to something that is plastic. <laughs> You're right. And there are initiatives in trying to make like your mycelium leathers or doing something out of proteins. And those all have the issue of scale, but they're promising. Yep. That's the hope, right? Is that those non-fossil fuel, non-plastic based technologies can find breakthrough. That's right. This role at Nike, was this really the first time you began focusing heavily on the fabric and apparel space? As far as like research sort of, but I mean, I would say I did it at the College of Textiles. Ironically, I'm a avid seamstress. So like I made my wedding dresses. Oh, wow. Yeah, I started sewing when I was four, you know, making things that, that would fall apart or you know, making a pair of pants and missing the legs, those kinds of things. And I would always put the patterns together and did it all the way through I mean, really, even when I was at school, I would still make my little sister. I had a very young sister, 14 years younger than me. I'd make her clothes. And I did that in the 90s. Well, no, that would have been in the 80s when I was growing up. I'm dating myself now, but I already said that I was 30 years as a chemical engineer. So in the 80s, 
I went to a parochial school and wore a uniform. I was one of seven. We didn't have a lot of disposable income. My dad worked really hard and paid tuition for all of us to get through and have great education. That's what was prioritized and as it should be. And I didn't have that many extra clothes because I didn't need them. And they were also expensive. And that's why I started sewing. And my mom sewed all our clothes. She would make our clothes. And so I would look at something expensive in the store and be like, I can make that. It was all about economics or getting the right style or the right type of feel. And so that's what I did. You know, I even for my wedding, I've made my full wedding dress and three bridesmaids dresses, which is crazy. It was like a year of development. So that was my textile. So I love textiles. I love fabric. I love patterns. Well, I mean, it sounds to me like you found a personal passion or interest early on in your life. You went into chemistry, you know, somehow subconsciously worked on applications in chemistry that could be applied to fashion. I'm not sure if that's why you started with those applications. And then you landed in a role at Nike where all of a sudden, like you were working on this all the time. And that was your jumping off point for, I think, where you are today at Cirque, which is you're actually trying to redesign how the whole industry works. Yes, that's right. So it's exciting. So ironically, how I came to meet Cirque, we were called Titan Biosciences and a former postdoc of mine who's now at Apple. We worked together on cellulose and lignin and trees. So it was always like a mix between natural materials and then those coming from fossil fuels. And she called me up one day and she said, hey, Julie, she formerly worked at Adidas. And she goes, I know this company because we've been looking at circularity and they're looking for a chief scientific officer. And, you know, they're small, but I think, you know, from everything I've seen, they're very legit. So she introduced me to Peter Majoranowski and Connor Hartman, the CEO and COO of Cirque. And the rest is history. So I saw firsthand when I was at Nike, the amount of waste we were trying to keep all the cut waste at Nike, like pure, virgin pure. So as soon as you start laminating and mixing up different materials together, they become harder to separate. So it was definitely spoke to me in that way. And they just closed on their Series A with Patagonia, which allowed them to bring me on board. Oh, that's awesome. Well, let's start unpacking a little bit about the challenges of the clothing and sort of fashion industry today. You have a great page on your website you call the cost of clothing on the Cirque website. And it says things like the average garment that we own is only worn seven to 10 times before being discarded. And the average person buys 60% more clothing today than 15 years ago. And I think I've read an asterisk to that that says, and only keeps clothes for about half as long. I don't think that part's on your website. I think I've seen that stat somewhere also. Yes. I think it was the Ellen MacArthur Foundation that did a really great summary of kind of the fast fashion problem and its contributions to both emissions and waste. Why has all this happened? What changes has the industry gone on to that has caused this incredible amount of wasteful consumption? You know, I mentioned... In the 90s, I was at Dow Corning at the time. Now it's Dow Silicons. As we were talking about my background, I was on a product process market team that was called the North American Textiles Group because there's many silicone finishes that go into your textile clothing. So I saw in the 90s working at Dow Corning just what happened to the textile industry here in the U.S. And so I would say that 
back then in the 90s, the clothes still like the full impact of fast fashion and the cost of clothing, like how inexpensive it became, wasn't really realized until towards the late 90s after NAFTA and after much was offshored to Asia going after the cheaper labor. I mean, obviously cheap labor and I don't know that they're necessarily like worse materials because I just read an article a couple of days that many times you'll have different levels of clothing brands under the same roof, you know, using some of the same materials. Now, what fast fashion has done, it actually did something really good for social impact is that it democratized fashion. So if you look back into like I told my story, I didn't have that much. And it was also there was a lot of borrowing going on when I was in a sorority. It was great because I had 40 girls closets to access that we were bartering and trading, which is like, that's a circular economy in itself. And what fast fashion has done is it copies what's on, you know, it gets its inspiration or actually looks at the luxury brands and the fashion trendsetters. And then it scales it back to a place where the fabrics aren't quite as luxurious. They're not sewn. So I mentioned I'm a seamstress. I used to be really picky and I still am about how the seams are finished. And, you know, they're not finished the way I would do them or if it was lined or not lined. And it's just like deconstructing that garment to make it easier and faster to process. And so what that gave is people of lower incomes the ability to be fashionable, which is great. Right. So now, unfortunately, we keep growing as a population. So that's one of the things. If you hear that we're buying 60% more and then we're growing at a rate of 10% every year, it's just not sustainable to keep tapping these resources that we keep pulling from the earth. And that's true with a natural, with cotton. And how much of it has been the transition from cotton-based clothing to polyester-based clothing? I mean, that's been underway for a long time, what, 50 years plus, I guess. But most clothing today has some form of polyester blend to it, I presume. Is that accurate? I think that statistic is something like 66% is a polycotton. It might be a little higher. So here's the thing, like cotton itself, and there are great research, great agriculture innovations to grow cotton that is more tolerant to droughts, that doesn't need as much water, is grown indoors, uses less pesticides. But all that, like the story of cotton, you'll hear it's a dirty crop. Now, if you look at cotton as a whole, I mean, it has such a history that is based on awful human treatment, slavery and child labor and all that And so cotton is natural, but it still has a pretty significant impact, you know, negatively into our environment. And it can still go to the landfill. So even though it's cotton, it'll still go to the landfill. If it's still incinerated, it's kind of combined. So I think it's hard to say it's polyester or cotton that's doing it. It's just like it is our mass consumption. It is the fact that people have more disposable incomes and things are made cheaper. I pull out some stuff from the 90s. and I look at the price tag, especially from the fabric stores. I'm like, really? I paid this much and it's the same price now. And so I think that's been part of it. It's just been the huge economies of scale that the fashion industry went after. And the fact that there wasn't much legislation or regulation into environmental practices in these developing countries where the cheap labor was. And fortunately, that's being corrected. Hey, everyone, I'm Yin, a partner at MCJ Collective, here to take a quick minute to tell you about our MCJ membership community, which was born out of a collective thirst for peer-to-peer learning and doing that goes beyond just listening to the podcast. 
We started in 2019 and have grown to thousands of members globally. Each week, we're inspired by people who join with different backgrounds and points of view. What we all share is a deep curiosity to learn and a bias to action around ways to accelerate solutions to climate change. Some awesome initiatives have come out of the community. A number of founding teams have met, several nonprofits have been established, and a bunch of hiring has been done. Many early-stage investments have been made, as well as ongoing events and programming, like monthly women in climate meetups, idea jam sessions for early-stage founders, climate book club, art workshops, and more. Whether you've been in the climate space for a while or just embarking on your journey, having a community to support you is important. If you want to learn more, head over to mcjcollective.com and click on the Members tab at the top. Thanks, and enjoy the rest of the show. It's such an interesting and complex topic because I think what you're pointing out, what I'm hearing, is like most things in climate, there's no one answer. Stop doing this, right? And like the whole world will be solved, right? Like cotton, as you point out, is a dirty crop, has all these horrible societal underpinnings to it. I think I read that the average T-shirt takes 700 gallons of water to produce, which would be eight cups a day of water for three and a half years for a typical human. Like that's a lot of water for one cotton t-shirt. That is a lot of water. And yet polyester, something like a third of all microplastics in the ocean come from laundering polyester clothing and the little microplastics that peel off the clothes and go through your washing machine and ultimately drain to the ocean. Both of these things essentially are causing problems. And, you know, we've increased production of all of it in order to make clothes lower cost and more accessible for everybody, which is good. Generally, people can feel like they're societal equals, not based on what they wear. And yet something's got to give, right? Like all these things are causing problems. And so I suppose that's sort of what Cirque is trying to solve, which is, can we stop creating new of all of this? Can we start reusing what we have? That's exactly right. And we do see ourselves like we're the last in. So we want clothes to be made well. We want sustainable fashion to be accessible to all. So we just had a beautiful launch last week with Dress with Mara Hoffman. And it was gorgeous. And it was a small collection that is 35. I think it was 35 dresses, which is what was said. And we need to scale that so we can make that 3,500 dresses so that we can make that, that everyone can buy a Mara Hoffman dress. It might not be Mara Hoffman, but it can be a sustainable, sustainably made garment. And I think that's the most important. And what Cirque can do is, and what I've been since I joined Cirque, it's like we're tapping into resources that Previously, we're just thought of waste and trash. We use these untapped resources, the polyester and cotton, to make new circular fibers, circular polyester fibers and new circular lyocell fibers. So lyocell is a man-made, I hesitate to say cotton, but cotton is a cellulose. And so once you take the cotton out from our patented technology, we take the cotton and we put it in it's called a regenerated cellulose. And the old method of making that was like a viscous rayon method, especially the rayon. And there were, that process wasn't environmentally friendly, but the new method of making regenerated lyocell, it's completely closed loop. It makes a beautiful silk-like fabric. And that was the same filament that was made for the Mara Hoffman launch. And it was the same type of filament that was used for the Zara launch back in April. It has this great feel to it. So Cirque takes existing fabrics, clothing, used clothing, runs them through a process to separate and then outputs both essentially raw polyester and 
this material you call lyocell, which is sort of like a rayon replacement that, you know, will feel silky, I guess, to the touch. And those both become essentially spools of new thread that can be turned into new fabric. Am I understanding correctly how your process works? Pretty much. So what I like to say is we liquefy the polyester. So if you take polyester cotton, you can't really pull those two out. So there's different innovators that will take the cotton and recycle that. And those are great. And then there's the polyester blends and you can do, I mean, recycling of polyester that has been around for a while, like in the nineties, it just, no one wanted to recycle. And I remember being a young chemical engineer and trying to do the environmental thing. It's like, no, it's cheaper to send it to waste treatment and they need it. So let's keep them. That feels like the story of everything to do with plastic is like, it's it's always cheaper. cheaper to just use new stuff. Yes. It's cheaper. So what we do is we liquefy the polyester through our hydrothermal process, and that's what we have patented. And then we take that out. And if you look at it, just imagine putting some your T-shirt in a pressure cooker on your pot and then with some water. And then we use some benign chemistry that will break the polyester down through a hydrolysis process. And then that is what makes terephthalic acid. It breaks it down to make monomers, and those monomers are liquid. I don't know if I just threw some terms out that you might not know. A monomer is like a single building block of a long plastic chain. And a plastic chain is also called a polymer. So polymeric materials can be plastic. So let's go through each stage of this process so that our listeners can understand how it works. So step one is you take this textile waste. Where do you source it from? Like, is there a whole part of the Cirque business that is intaking used textiles from somewhere? So I joined the company actually November 1st, 2019. It'll be four years next year. And okay, then, thank you. And then what happened in early 2020? COVID hit. I had a small team of three. We didn't have our process built. We had a little lab reactor and we were doing one t-shirt a day when I started. And we fortunately had just rented a warehouse, a big empty warehouse. And we started getting calls like Patagonia, who's our lead investor for the Series A. They had this great program. It's called Warnware. It's all the Patagonia goes through a really strict processing intake before they would resell it. And then I don't know what the percentage is of what got resold, but the rest of that could be sent to CERC was diverted to CERC. And then we got calls from, with all those supply chains shutting down, we got calls from so many people. Can you take a container of this? Can you take 10 containers? Unsold goods. So that's where much of it can come from is unsold goods. It's like, I think at 30%. And that's where some innovation can happen with consumer analytics is not overproducing. Better predict what the consumer will buy through some algorithm, artificial intelligence that will allow manufacturers to make, to be more accurate in their predictions. As a comparative to what you just shared, I had on the pod a little while ago, a fellow named Bill Caesar. He's the CEO of Generate Upcycle, which is Generate Capital's upcycle business. They do things like anaerobic digestion of food waste and agricultural waste, as well as composting. And he shared a similar sort of anecdote, which is they get calls from people all over the place with all sorts of random stuff that was like 
overstocked on the shelves and now they need to deal with it. I think he talked about one time they had a vodka producer who had some vodka that got recalled or something and they had just crates of vodka they had to figure out what to do with. It might have been like alcoholic seltzer. I don't remember what it was, but anyway, it doesn't matter. I'm hearing similar kind of thing as you, which is like you don't even necessarily know where these inputs are coming from, but you are building a brand as the off taker, if you will, of this waste fabric. What do the economics of that look like? Are these fabric owners, for lack of a better term, paying you to take the fabric or are you buying it from them at a low cost typically? So right now, I mean, we should get a tipping fee because polyester cotton. So similar to generate upcycle. Yeah, polyester cotton, it can only be downcycled right now. We upcycle it. We make it into really valuable product. Just for examples, we closed on our Series B. That was the summer of... 2022, I think. Yeah, because it's 2023. Yeah. So summer of 2022, it was Bill Gates' Breakthrough Energy Ventures that was the lead investor on that. So it was just, it felt like just such a huge vote of confidence in the CERC technology because the technical diligence on the Breakthrough Energy went through was very deep. And so that was a testament to how how solid our technology is. And we're very honored to have them lead our B round. And it was oversubscribed. And we had that also that came in with that round was Inditex, which is the mothership of Zara. And so with that round, our milestones are to complete the engineering for the first integrated end-to-end facility for textile recycling. So where you take the textiles in and then you mechanically size it so it can feed into our process to liquefy the polyester. But then after you liquefy the polyester, you have to separate the cotton. So imagine opening up that pressure cooker I talked about, and you have a bunch of cotton rags now that were half the weight as they were because half of that weight was polyester that turned to liquid. So they almost, we call them like cotton skeletons. And you have to filter out, just like if you dumped it into your spaghetti, into a colander, and drain the water out. So that's what we do. We dump out the cotton, we collect the cotton, and then all that liquid stream, that's gold. That's our polyester liquor that's gold to us. I mean, both are gold because we have this beautiful cotton pulp. And that is what's turned into the lyocell or man-made cellulosic fiber that right now, the majority of that is from trees. So the way that you make those cellulosic fibers today, the man-made, the lyocells, the rayons, the viscose, and rayons, not, not too many people, they've all transitioned to the viscose process. They use tree pulp. And tree pulp means we have to keep cutting down trees and we don't want to cut those trees down. We want to keep them up so they're sequestering our CO2. So we use that cotton pulp to make the lyocell and then on the polyester side, extract the monomers and repolymerize the monomers to make the polyester. Okay, so I'm gonna try to simplify what I'm hearing just to make sure I'm following. So on the front end, step one is you collect waste fabrics and that business looks a lot like food waste, agricultural waste, sort of recycling, where you're getting paid a tipping fee to take the stuff in because mm-hmm. it's waste that you're helping them to deal with. Right. They were going to have to throw it away or landfill it or burn it or do something terrible with it if you didn't step in. And a lot of that waste is coming direct from the cut and sew factory. So that's what I meant to say is that we do have like all this other waste and post-consumer waste. We can treat that too. But you're right. So imagine all the facilities out there that are creating garments and they have all this waste. What are they going to do? with it. They send it to us. For the most part, otherwise they're landfilling it or burning it, both of which are generally not good. 
So then they send it to you. You then take it. You put it in these big pressure cookers. I think you call it a hydrothermal process. That's right. You said water and benign chemicals. Mm -hmm. So let me ask about that. Like water, we've already established growing virgin cotton takes a lot of water. We've established that polyester throws off a lot of microplastics into water. Are you doing anything here from a water perspective that is also better? Or is there still a lot of like water waste that comes out of your process? So it's not waste. Everything we use is closed loop. So the water we put into the process, we then recover it. It's a continual closed loop system. Wow. Awesome. So you're able to reuse the water that you run through your process for the next batch you do after you've treated it. Exactly. And you said benign chemicals. You're not ending up with like pools of acids that you're having to throw off somewhere in the planet. No, it's pretty standard. It's like standard chemistry that you would be using to make, say, like giving your paper. So it's the paper that you write on. So I think it's just a a way to the benign chemistry is just that. It's just a pH adjuster. And so by changing the pH, you can accelerate the reaction. And so we do this continuously. And by doing it continuously, we are able to get the economies of scale. So you have to build it. That's the next thing. I mean, you know, everyone asks, like, is this economical? Well, yes, it's economical. The plastics industry became a commodity because the big producers, you know, back in the day, the Eastmans, the Exxons, they made commodity polyester and they made it at hundreds and thousands of tons a day. Well, our first facility is going to make 33,000 tons of recycled polyester from textiles. So that kind of gives you an idea if we're running 200 tons a day and these big commodity producers are running at thousands and thousands of tons a day, you still have an economy scale to catch up. So there is these early adapters. And I'll tell you, I've been an engineer scientist, as you know, for many years, and I have never encountered such a strong market pool for the product. Usually the engineers, scientists, we get frustrated because it's like technology push, push, push. We can't get marketing on board. Now we cannot make it fast enough. We cannot build it fast enough. We're going to come to your commercialization in a minute. Let me just make sure I get us through the process. So, So you've got this pressure cooker. The water in it now is being recycled through the system. The chemistries that you put in it are not creating pools of acids or tailings or things like that that are, you know, dirty secret nobody talks about. And then essentially the fabrics that are in this liquid, you said the polyesters essentially melt off them into liquid and you're left with essentially the remains of cotton. And those remains of cotton get turned into this essentially rayon-like material, lyocell, I think you called it. And the polyester liquid then can get essentially reformulated back into polyester thread when all said and done. Am I fully understanding it at this point? Yes, that's right. And these happen in large factory facilities that you own and operate. These are not happening on site at a existing materials company or an existing fabrics company as well. Is that the correct assumption or is that a TBD? No, it's not a TBD. So I mentioned just four years ago that we were operating everything in the lab and one reactor, one t-shirt at a time. You cannot build, engineer and build a facility of the scale we're talking about in that amount of time. While you're building, the, basically we're building the car and trying to drive it at the same time. But where we've really been able to step back is say, we've had great partners. So Andritz is one of our partners and we were able to basically take you know, rent out 50% of that facility. So that is a commercially relevant facility where we were able 
that was demonstrated. That was our big breakthrough was to take it from a batch. So you said batch, which you probably didn't realize what that meant. But for unit operations and techno economic analysis, you want continuous processes because those are the most profitable processes. And when you're talking about these types of materials, which really still, they will get a premium because there's still not the supply that the demand is creating, but you need to run continuous. And that's what we were able to do with the Andritz team is taking our science and using this basically, it's not off the shelf, but we'll say it's off the shelf equipment because they don't have big reactors sitting on the shelf waiting for someone to buy them. They engineer it to your specifications. So that's what we've been doing is running our process there and then doing the final processing at our Danville facility. So we take the pulp out at the Ohio facility and then the polyester liquor purification of the monomers are done in Danville, Virginia. And then we work with partners to repolymerize them. And so this has all created this design where we're going end to end. And you had mentioned earlier on, not related to your product, but I think it was maybe when you were at Nike, you said, you know, oftentimes these raw polyester fibers by themselves, totally fine to recycle them. The problem is you add all this coating and all this stuff on them for the most part, and that's what causes problems. How does your process deal with that? We filter it out. Essentially, we'll break it down and we filter it out. And so at this point, we are able to concentrate it. So if you look at just on a volume scale, you have all those dyes and finishes that are put on textile products today. They're going to a landfill or being incinerated, which you don't know what's being incinerated and what that breaking down of that molecule is going to happen. And so we pull them out, we extract them out through filtration in the water stream, and then it's concentrated. So you're going to orders of magnitude lower of what would then be handled responsibly by a chemical waste facility. There is waste byproduct, but this is stuff that would be wasted anyway that you're having to navigate responsibly afterward. Yeah, it'd be wasted in a volume size. It would take up acres and land acres where we might like condense it down to an eight ounce jar. Got it. And so let's talk about some of the commercial um, partnerships you have thus far. You know, you talked a bit about the fact that the parent company behind Zara is an investor. Seems like you're also exploring some commercial relationships with them as well. Is that correct? Yes, they're committed to take our product. So publicly, their CEO said that they're going to use all recycled materials by the year 2030. We just did a back of the envelope calculation on what that means for a CERC facility. And we're going to have to hurry up and get building. (laughs) I mean, it's way over 10. And that's a scale that makes sense. So that makes sense from a standpoint of the throughput. I mean, what we're producing out of our first commercial facility, we're in a semi-commercial arrangement now. But when we have our integrated facility from end to end, we're still just like a drop in the ocean of what is needed to satisfy like just a single Inditex demand of using all recycled materials by 2030. And Julie, you mentioned that this is the first time you've seen to where you can't produce enough product to satisfy demand. What has caused that seismic shift in demand for recycled material, for recycled fashion? Is it public pressure? Is it, you know, net zero pledges that these companies are making? Is it just general awareness of the challenge of fast fashion? Because at the end of the day, as we talked about, 
virgin plastics are cheap. It's really hard for these companies when they are having to pay more for a sustainable alternative to justify doing it in any kind of scale. You're right. Well, the scale requires capital. So you really need the people making the commitments to invest in the infrastructure that is going to make us a better world because we can't keep going the way we are. As far as the shift as to why it's now, it's unfortunate, but people have realized that global warming is real. I'm in Philadelphia right now and it's almost 70 in the end of October. That's not normal. The fires that have existed, the droughts that have existed, the extreme temperatures. I mean, it's just sad. And so much of younger generations is really sad to hear some of them just give up and like, well, I'm doomed. You know, I'm not going to I'm not going to have a family because I don't want my kids doomed into this world. I think we have a responsibility as humans on this planet to clean it up, but it's going to take time. And it's also going to take pressure. And the pressure has come through regulation. So Europe is leading the way on this. And it's described as the chief sustainability officer. It's a regulation tsunami coming down. So where certain amount of materials, they're not going to be able to send in Europe any textiles to a landfill. It'll take you know, how are you going to prevent sending, you know, the everyday average consumer from putting something in their garbage can? But it's just like you can't. These things happen. Like we used to send asphalt shingles to a garbage can and people don't do that anymore. They recycle the proper way. I think that is a shift. I think one thing that is easy to forget when you're working in this space is that not everyone understands it like you do or is as passionate as you are about climate technologies. They just don't get it. So there is an education piece out there for the consumer. But it's also like, look at the iPhone in 2007. It didn't exist. And now none of us could like imagine not having a smartphone. And that hasn't been that long ago. And why did everyone like it is because it was an experience. So if we can figure out a way to make a community out of recycling and having better sustainable products, I think we can really drive this even further for the consumer, like make them want to recycle. The analogy that sticks to me, hearing your kind of continue call for, hey, at the end of the day, the technology is there. We need people to step up and fund scaling out the infrastructure to make this stuff happen at scale. The analogy that I'm reminded of is actually electric cars, which is for decades we had prototypes of like a solar car or this sort of thing at the Detroit Auto Show. And, you know, the big car companies would get up and say, look at all of the stuff we're doing for the environment and to be sustainable. And then we all now know we're actively blocking legislation, trying to drive down or trying to increase fuel efficiency and or legislation in California about pushing electric car adoption, et cetera. And it finally tipped like it tipped it, you know, a few years ago, mostly because of Tesla, where now all the big automakers are realizing there is consumer demand for EVs and they have all finally are moving their production facilities to really fund EV battery manufacturing and fund the creation of EVs as a mass vehicle. And legislation is tipped and all that stuff is tipped. Like I have a bit of skepticism in fashion personally that, you know, it's easy to parade around a few garments that were sustainably created and use them as PR. If the main engine isn't trying to drive toward this stuff, 
How real is it going to be? And I'm curious as an insider in the industry, like where you think we are in that transition? I mean, it's hard to say that we're not in the early days because the facilities don't exist yet. And as far as the ones that are pumping out everyday pounds, like we have a great facility that we have a supply chain and great partners that we can work with where we're doing our process. And we have enough to, for instance, Mara Hoffman claimed that they cited they're switching all their product to Cirque Lyocell awesome. of that market. And we have enough capacity to do that right now. And we work with our partner in Asalon, in it's called Ace Green in Taiwan. And they take our cotton pulp and they will produce it to the specifications, say, for the likes of Mara Hoffman and more. And that will keep the market interest because we can't go quiet. We have to keep feeding the market and the appetite of our product while we are building with our engineering partners, while we're putting steel in the ground and building this first really kick-ass facility. And I think it has to change. And I know that you know, my past colleagues from Nike, it's real. When I left Nike, nowhere had I seen in the six years that I was there. I mean, sustainability was always an initiative, but like there wasn't a project that could go forward if it didn't meet sustainability first. So I think fortunately now the transparency that the H&Ms, the Zaras of the world are using with their fabric, I mean, there is a lot of attention on these brands to, to ensure they're making good product. So I am hopeful. It also means don't throw away your clothes and trade them by vintage. I mean, since I took this job and became even more aware, I haven't thrown any clothes away. And my husband had to build me a bigger closet. And then it's like eating low-fat cookies or you know, sugar-free cookies. I go to a vintage shop. I have no guilt buying anything in a vintage shop or a thrift store. Well, I mean, look, we've seen the transition happen in automotive or it's happening in automotive. It could still happen faster, but it's happening. We're seeing it happen in just the energy we consume in our daily lives as more and more of the grid moves renewable as well. There's no doubt that what we wear every day is one of the most visible things we all interact with. And it's a purchase decision we make more frequently than buying a car or thinking about where our home power comes from. And so it's a good message, you know, you're sharing, which is all of us can vote with our wallet. And ultimately, this needs to be a systems change. But the more each of us make daily decisions, it drives pressure in the right ways. It does. And I'll give you an example of like the consumer experience. So Madewell is a great brand. I have a 14 year old daughter and that's her favorite brand of jeans. And we go down there and the jeans aren't I mean, they're not cheap, but they're like mainstream, you know, a hundred bucks. And if you get them on sale, a little bit less, but Madewell will give you $50 for any type of gene you bring in. It doesn't even have to be a Madewell gene. Mm-hmm. And so now we live about 50 minutes away from a Madewell. So she has this big stack of jeans that she's saving to bring down to Madewell. And those are the types of things that creates brand loyalty, that you tell the stories. I mean, you need a story behind this. You can't just create here is the science, here's the engineering, and then it falls flat. I mean, you have to have that story behind it too. I love it. Well, Julie, I so appreciate you coming on. I know I asked some hard questions, but just trying to understand the space and the work you all are doing are on the front end of trying to change the way this whole industry works, which we all touch and feel on a daily basis. And it's such a big deal. It is a big deal and it's important. The team at Cirque, it's been an honor to be with them to take them through this journey over the last four years. 
Well, I'm so glad you've decided to take all of the skills and experience you built on your career and apply it to this problem. And the more people who are listening who can figure out how you can do the same, it all makes a difference. And so, you know, Julie, thanks for the work you're doing. No problem. Thanks, Cody, for bringing this delight to the masses. Thanks again for joining us on the My Climate Journey podcast. At MCJ Collective, we're all about powering collective innovation for climate solutions by breaking down silos and unleashing problem-solving capacity. If you'd like to learn more about MCJ Collective, visit us at mcjcollective.com. And if you have a guest suggestion, let us know that via Twitter at mcjpod. For weekly climate op-eds, jobs, community events, and investment announcements from our MCJ Venture Funds, be sure to subscribe to our newsletter on our website. Thanks, and see you next episode.